0: You're listening to the divestopedia exit strategy podcast where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them we elicit expert advice from exit planners attorneys merger and acquisition experts accountants business appraisers and financial advisors all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition.
1: Thanks for joining the Exit Strategy Simplified blog and podcast. Here today is Richard C. Wilson, founder of the 49,000-member family office group and author of the family office book, Investing Capital for the Ultra Affluent. Richard, thanks so much for joining us today, and I wanted to jump right into it and ask you to tell our listeners, based on your experience, you know, what's the one thing any owner can start doing right now to prepare for an exit?
2: I think the one thing you need to do is really position your company to be a strategic acquisition instead of a kind of commodity revenue acquisition. Um, The difference is that if somebody looks to acquire your business, take it over, merge with you, they're either going to look at your revenue and just do the math and just say, well, I want this to pay off in three, five, or seven years and give you an offer for that amount, or if you can be a strategic addition to their business and give them access to a new market, help their branding position them, get them more leads every day for their business, then you might be worth far more than what your revenue So I think that you need to think about your own business and your own industry and niche and think about how you can build systems, processes, positioning, unique assets, barriers to entry so that your competitors will see you as a strategic uh, acquisition instead of just kind of a revenue multiplier type opportunity.
1: That's a great answer. And and, uh, in your experience, have you seen any companies that have done this incredibly well?
2: can't think of a great example off the top of my head, but this actually came up because uh, there's a publicly traded media company that has approached us about buying, you know, our training and association division, and then we told them no, and they came back to us and said, well, can we buy a part of it and kind of partner with you? And then I started reading a lot of books on how to sell your business and how to position your business to sell, and it just came up again and again in, those, in every book I read that was written by experts in the field. That you need to position yourself strategically, so I think a good example is um you know if you are in a small niche industry and you have say a newsletter or a magazine that your company operates into the number one or a top three publication in that industry, maybe it only produces $5,000 a month for your business, but that branding might be worth quite a lot to a larger industry player. So that's a a good, I think, example of how you can get uh, bought out by somebody for more than your worth in terms of just revenue.
1: Yeah, that's a great, uh, great advice and great suggestion. So, when when you're working with families and the families that you've seen, what would you say are some of the strategies that they're using to minimize taxes?
2: Well, my answer here is not going to be quite. You know, as valuable as my other answers, just because um I pretty much defer all my decisions to my c p a um, and he guides me in my specific situation. But when I work with ultra wealthy families, I see them um, using real estate uh, structures and rolling things over, um doing things with inside foundations or trusts um, basically, a lot of them. Might live in a different state six months and one day out of the year, and um, you know obviously you got to consult with your advisor in your specific situation on what's going to work for you. But really, I think that um, what's interesting when I've worked with the ultra wealthy is that a lot of them actually pay a lot more attention to protecting their principal and protecting their capital, and then they try to make things tax efficient after their plan is in place. Uh, they don't let taxes kind of guide their whole plan, uh, which I think is kind of interesting and something that is a little bit counterintuitive and I didn't think was the case, you know, maybe five or seven years ago.
1: Yeah, no, but uh, after protecting principal and preserving capital, uh, I agree, real estate, foundations, trust, managing your residency, all those are great ways to minimize taxes uh, when used appropriately. Hmm. So, so- one of the things that I'm sure you help it guide families with is looking for, you know, a money person, someone they can trust with some allocation of their capital. So maybe mm-hmm. you could tell our listeners, you know, what's a good process to go through to vet people and um, questions to ask, things to look for?
2: Sure. Um, I think, you know, you look for somebody with a high level integrity, someone who, you know, as a hard worker and doesn't seem too slick when you meet with them, uh, somebody that, you know, just at a gut level you feel like you can trust and has a high degree of character. But I think that one of the quickest ways to assess whether somebody has all those things is just to look at how they've structured their business and their life and how they structure their time every day and whether they do everything with the long term in mind or whether they take shortcuts everywhere and don't invest in their own business and don't, you know, grow their team and grow themselves for the long term. I think that being long term minded Um, is something that only people who are dedicated to their industry and serving their clients will really do. And people who are just in the game for the short term, trying to make a quick dollar, uh, and don't really know what they're doing yet, will always be looking for shortcuts.
1: That's a great, great, easy way to evaluate that. Um, Mm -hmm. And and anything to add to that? Any stories that you've heard or anything you could share about maybe people that – either how they identified someone that was right or how they ended up identifying someone that was wrong?
2: Um, Yeah, we came across somebody a few months ago who had an opportunity working with a global wealthy family, and um, it seemed like a combination of possibly too good to be true, and some of the details just didn't seem to line up, just something gut-wise told me this person was not someone we wanted to work with. And when I told them, I didn't want to work with them, um, they got really upset and sent over, you know, a mad email that we wouldn't work with their family, um, cause it just wasn't a good fit for our business model. And in those emails, it just became really obvious that a lot of the things they had told us before weren't true at all. Um, you know, like amount of assets they had, the investment types they had, et cetera. And it could have got us into probably compliance trouble if I had agreed to work with them and, um, you know, had them as a client, you know, it could have gotten me into some compliance hot water. So sometimes you just have to trust your gut and you do background checks and you do your due diligence, but it just doesn't feel right. You know, there's millions of clients you can work with and you don't have time to work with everybody anyway, so you might as well not work with somebody if you're not sure about them.
1: Good advice as well. So in in the wealth management business and in uh, families that are looking for advice, What I find, it's it's incredibly confusing for the average consumer to differentiate, you know, brokerage firms and registered investment advisor firms and family offices and multifamily offices and all the different people out there that are advising clients about their investments. Can you kind of walk us through that process and maybe underscore some of the distinctions between the different people out there that are looking to help affluent families?
2: Sure. Um, You know, who is best for someone's individual situation, you know, will change based on your types of investments, where you are in the world, what your investment goals are. But just some quick definitions, Uh, you know, a brokerage firm typically offers either direct trading on your behalf into equities and bonds or access to mutual funds and ETFs or variable annuities, et cetera. Um, an RAA typically, instead of making money off of individual transactions, buying and selling things, an RAA typically is a bit more independent. They might be tied to one, two, or three investment platforms that have products on them, but they can pretty much uh, get access to the products you request in most cases, and typically they just charge a, a flat fee as a percentage of your your assets instead of um, you know charging you on a transaction basis. so that's typically you know where people are going nowadays. Um, now there's a kind of a a topic that's gotten much more popular and is something I focus on every single day, and that is uh, family office wealth management and family offices really help be your kind of CFO for your family or for you individually, and they kind of manage your full balance sheet financial situation. situation. So an RIA might just help you with your investments, where a family office can provide a little bit more holistic uh, overview, and maybe they'll help you with your insurance needs, with charitable giving, with multi-generational transfer of wealth, and generally if you have
3: $10
2: million plus, uh, and especially if you have $20 million plus, you should probably be considering a family office and at least do research on the topic, and um, it's really a growing business model, so I think in the future we're going to see many more family offices out there um, advising clients than we do right now.
1: And what about the distinction between the multi-family office and the standalone family office? Can you kind of identify those distinctions also?
2: Yeah, so a single family office is a group which is set up for one individual or one family, and so everybody on the team there is just looking out for those families' investments, assets, insurance, everything related to their financial picture, and everything is crafted custom for them. A multi-family office is much much less expensive. Um, with a single family office, you have to have typically 30, 50 million as a bare minimum, and many times 100 million to do it right. And a multi-family office, if you have 10 or 20 million, you can generally be accepted as a client. And in a multifamily office, there's one core team, but they're serving – four families, 12 families, sometimes as many as 50 or 100-plus families. And inside the multifamily office, they customize your investment solution and they customize everything they do for you, but the team is trying to leverage the fact that they're doing research on hedge fund managers and real estate investment opportunities and ETFs on behalf of all the different clients. So every every multifamily office will have different areas that they have strengths in, weaknesses in, and they will have to serve multiple clients. They're not all there in the office to answer your phone calls and do research for you, um, you know, around the clock and answer to you maybe as fast um, as if you had a single family office that's dedicated to you. But it can be a huge step up in service from a wealth management firm, which is really kind of siloed service and um, not as holistic or complete in terms of what they can do for you.
1: And have you found in your experience that once you qualify for the multifamily office category or a single family office category that those are generally the best fit or, or does sometimes it make sense to have a brokerage firm or a kind of a plain vanilla registered investment advisory firm still working with the
2: family? Um I I guess it depends on what you know what you need and what you would like. If you have some investment knowledge and you're managing some of your investments your own, you might just simply need, you know, a brokerage firm or an RIA and some firms just call themselves a wealth management firm or RIA, and in fact, they offer all the same services as a family office. It's just a title that you can give yourself if you're a wealth management firm and you think you're offering a really complete solution. So there's a lot of confusion over who's a family office, who's not. Um, Some people that have been in the industry a really long time will say the only family offices are single family offices, but the reality is there's thousands of firms out there calling themselves multifamily offices, so you can't deny the reality that that part of the industry, exists and is thriving right now Um, so it really depends on your investment picture but most of the time you know, one of the core benefits of using a multifamily office is that all of your financial things are managed under one roof. So you don't want to be overinsured or underinsured. You don't want to forget to put away money each year for your kids uh, for when you pass away. And sometimes if things are managed by different people, things can fall through the cracks. I just spoke with a CPA in Dallas yesterday who advises ultra wealthy clients. He said one person came to them after selling their business and they ended up with a seven-figure tax bill that could have been almost completely avoided if they had met with them before the transaction. And so possibly if they had been working with the family office early enough, they could have avoided you know, 500000 or $800,000 worth of taxes that they paid just because they didn't have the right structure set up. Um, so that is why sometimes paying a little bit more in fees uh, can more than pay for itself You know, when working with a multifamily office.
1: And and in uh, fleshing out the multifamily office model, and when when consumers are out there looking, you know, people that probably are either selling their business or thinking about selling their business, and now they're going to be in a position to work with a multifamily office. What's the interview process like there? Is it going to be similar to just you know trusting your gut and making sure that that person has a long term business, or are there some specific steps they could take?
2: Um. I've written about this quite a bit in the uh the book I just released called uh, The Family Office Book Investing Capital for the Ultra Affluent and I I believe it's chapter 5 in that book uh, where I go over um, basically, all the advice I have on selecting a family office, but really, you need to see what the strength of that family office is and what your investment priorities are. You need to see how many people they have on their team. Is it one person? Is it fifty people? You need to see who you'll be coordinating with day to day and make sure you kind of get along with them. Do they rush you out of meetings? Are they impatient with you? You know, they should. You know, they should really listen to you carefully. And things need to be crafted, sort of custom to your situation. So if you feel like somebody's impatient, rushed, has a short temper, it's just going to be hard to deal with, you don't need that extra stress in your life, chances are if you're ultra wealthy, you're probably working 60 or 80 hours a week or you have a lot of responsibilities, so the last thing you need is another headache in your life, Um, your multifamily office should be relieving a lot of headaches for you, so I think that would be my best, you know, suggestions on, you know, making sure you join the right group.
1: And then kind of coincident with that, and maybe it's part of the same interview process, you know, unfortunately when people accumulate wealth, they become a target. And, uh, you know, there are Ponzi schemes and scammers that are out there, what, what are your suggestions for trying to avoid uh, those types of people?
2: Um, I just think you should simply ask them for you know, three references of people that have been with their multifamily office for three years or more, and if they can provide you three references and you don't want to be the first client that stays with them for three years or more, um, and then, you know, if you speak to all three of those people and do your normal kind of due diligence that you would do before hiring um, a firm, then I think that extra step of asking for those references will help guard you against, you know, brand new multifamily offices that don't know what they're doing yet
1: about switching it over and talking about, you know, the impact of wealth on families. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people I've interacted with, they have a concern that money can be negative, a negative thing for their family. So do you have any Mm -hmm. advice for families that feel like they're facing that same issue and and problem in their life?
2: Um, Is it normally people that already have money that see it as negative or people who are just thinking about getting more money in your experience?
1: In my experience, it's, it's the liquidity. So now there's going to be a liquidity event, and as a result, there's a pile of cash as opposed to a stream of income. And, you know, the entitlement issues start creeping up, and who's going to be entitled, sure. and how do, how do they whack it up, and do they want to right. do now or later?
2: Okay. Um, so I think, you know, it's definitely bad when, you know, kids get access to money too quickly or even know that the family has too much money. They might just get a bit too relaxed and um, too complacent with the opportunities they have in life. Uh, A lot of of wealthy families have a next generation of kids who don't work hard, don't push themselves, don't develop themselves and they blow all the money and it's gone within another generation. Um, That happens all of the time. And I think that you know, I think money, you know, can be a great thing. I definitely don't think it's a negative thing. You know, people say money can not buy happiness. You know, I kind of disagree. You know, if you like going to the beach and you're able to go to the beach more often because you have enough money to pay someone to do some menial tasks, you know, or help manage your estate, you know, you just buy yourself some happiness by going to the beach more often. So, Definitely, I don't think it's all a negative thing. Um, Obviously, there's some real upsides of having money, but I think that one, one thing that happens is that families come into a lot of cash. They're not sure what to do with it. It takes them three to five years to allocate it once they come into the money, and during that time, their bank accounts can feel large to everybody around them and so with that money sitting there it feels like you have a lot of extra money so it just gets spent a lot faster if you come up with an investment budget and come up with your allocations and you know allocate $10 million and put it in a different private bank account or put it with a wealth management firm just getting that money moved out of just you know your general checking accounts and you know money market accounts alone will help you avoid some spending mistakes I think some people make when they first come into money. I mean, I think, luckily, a lot of people I know who have become ultra-wealthy did so by moving up the ladder step-by-step. Step. Some of them sold a business and then suddenly came into a lot of wealth, but many of them, to get to that point where they sold a business for 20 or $30 million, were making half a million or a million dollars a year, and they realized the hard work it takes to come into money, and I think that's much different if you inherit the money. Um, they say people who win the lottery often end up in debt. Um, more so than before they won the lottery later on in life. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's always best if you earn your right to come into the money rather than come into it all of a sudden, whether you're structuring that for your kids or, you know, choosing a payout structure for yourself. I think, I think it's just, um, it can be, it's a learning process to learn how to manage having a lot of money, I
1: think. Yeah. So, and, and kind of in that same vein in, in trying to build the lasting uh, long-lasting and positive legacy. What are some of the things you think owners should be thinking about and in influencing them, their kids and their grandkids? And
2: well, besides some people that inherit money, I really don't know anyone who became ultra-wealthy by being lucky. Um, I guess people who win the lottery. I've never met someone who's won the lottery. But, um, you know, I think in general society, people either think something negative Or something fortunate about someone who has a lot of money. You see someone pull up in a Ferrari, and you're like, wow, look at that rich jerk, or like, wow, that guy's so lucky, or see somebody in a yacht, and you think, wow, what a lucky guy. But really, it has almost nothing to do with being nice or mean. It has nothing to do with being lucky at all. It has to do with a lot of hard, focused work and advantages, um, you know, opportunities taken advantage of. So I think that I think that it's really important that you tell the family story because otherwise people will assume that grandpa got lucky or he was a rich jerk. Um, So I think that you need to tell your family story within a book. within some sort of memoir or memo within some sort of, even if it's just a 10-page write-up of the family history, I think the story needs to be told through the generations or people will just assume, you know, soon it will become distant from what really happened and the stories will trail off and the next generation will just not appreciate the hard work that went behind, you know, earning that money.
1: We just had Dr. Judith Colva on as a guest, and she talked at length about uh, telling the family story because she's a, a personal historian who writes memoirs. And
3: was uh, oh, so interesting to hear
1: how you know stories just get lost over time, and, and uh, without them being written or, or narrated or kind of recorded in some way, uh, they they have a tendency to just disappear. So that's great advice.
2: Right, for sure. I have that same um you know obviously i've I've never uh sold a business for a hundred million dollars et cetera so um I wouldn't consider myself ultra wealthy but you know my my daughter is here now and i've I've got one one daughter and I have to think myself too you know how how do I communicate you know our family story and my parents' story you know to her as she grows up and um you know I'm glad that someone else mentioned that um you know I thought it I think it's something that's pretty important yeah
1: well, in your experience, you know, I'd, I'd like for our listeners to hear some stories, and maybe they could either identify with them or perhaps take a different path from from what they hear. Um, oftentimes, you know, owners don't make difficult decisions because they're concerned about the consequences. And then later on, they realize uh, that was short-sighted, you know, like they they won't terminate a non-producing family member because they don't want the fallout from their spouse or their daughter-in-law or son-in-law. But then at the end of the day, they realize, oh, it probably would have been better off had I let them go out of the business. I mean, do you have any stories like that that you could share where people might be able to learn a lesson?
2: Um, Yeah, I think that sometimes in a medium-sized business it just gets exhausting running everything and you just come to this breaking point of either you need to build out the infrastructure, you need to build out your marketing, or you just kind of sell out at a very poor you know, uh, return on your money to a national firm or just start working for someone else. I think a lot of businesses get to that point. And I would just encourage, you know, someone to run in a business to, you know, use the infrastructure that's available nowadays through, you know, websites like elance.com or through hiring a part-time bookkeeper or CPA and just through self-education and really push forward to to grow their business. I've seen some people just kind of give up um, maybe right before they would have became really successful and after a lot of hard work and they just kind of fold their company into a national firm and provide all that brandy and hard work they've done to position themselves to this other company now that hasn't really paid for that. So um, I've definitely seen that mistake happen a few times.
1: Yeah. And I think there's some studies about, you know, people tend to to give up kind of right before they're about to hit the tipping point of success, you know, that that's where right. we get tested most. Um, what about if the other way around any any kind of positive stories about owners that did make difficult decisions and uh lived to see the benefits of that work
2: um yeah, I know one you know uh ultra wealthy family that Living in I think it was California or some state with a moderate uh, tax uh, income tax and just total state tax situation, and they almost moved their business to Nevada um, just to lower their taxes. but I think that they um, basically when assessing you know what their actual family goals are and their family values, they realized that not everything is about lowering their tax rate and maximizing their profits. Uh, They wanted to have a closely knit family, and they wanted to stay, you know, close to all of their um, personal relationships. And so part of this, you know, gets into when you're talking about serving a family or an ultra-wealthy family, a lot of it comes down to family dynamics and politics and family preferences and values and the family mission. And a lot of it comes down to some non-financial things, which then directly affect uh, financial decisions or where a business or a family is based. So I think that, you you know, everything has turned out well for that for that family, and I think they're really smart to look at things from a non-financial perspective and not just, you know, shove the decision down the, down the totem pole and just tell everybody that they're moving because they want to lower their tax rate. Um, so I think that was wise of them to consider other factors, and I think that the best multifamily offices will start with kind of a overview of what the family is trying to accomplish, you know, what's important to the family, and just make sure that all of that is fit into the solution that they're provided.
1: Yeah, that's great. I think in my firm, which, you know, we run a multifamily office, and we we define prosperity as equal parts of happiness and currency. And I think that falls Mm -hmm. right in line with what you're saying. You know, it's it's one thing if we could generate a better after-tax return, but if it's at the expense of some happiness, you know, we've got to reevaluate. For sure. What else do you think you'd like to share with our listeners that might be contemplating the sale of their business and thinking about what their next steps are and their financial plans and their personal plans?
2: Um, I guess my last tip would just be to do a thorough job of creating competition around the sale of your business, prices of everything goes up when other people think it's scarce, when other people are competing for a single resource. So besides positioning your business as a strategic acquisition, make sure that you build out a spreadsheet of the top 10, 20 companies that might want to acquire you, the contact details of a couple executives at each of those firms, go meet with them in person two, three, four times, and create almost like an auction type situation around your business, and that'll really drive up the multiple And you can play them off each other and say, you know, well, we have two standing offers. We just wanted to meet with you real quick just to make sure that we wouldn't be a fit with your business because, um, you know, we want to make sure we're sold to someone who, you know, really carries this business forward since we spent so many years building it, et cetera. So I think if you can create some competition around the sale, then you'll be able to protect the price you're asking for or maybe uh, raise it.
1: Sounds good. So if our listeners had an interest in joining the family office group or they want to get a hold of you for some of your advice and counsel, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
2: Um, The best way would be to go to our website at familyofficesgroup.com, and there we've got lots of free videos, a free report they can download. My email address is on there, which is Richard. At familyofficesgroup.com. it's familyoffices, plural, group.com. And I just encourage them to uh, also get a copy of my book. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's only about 28 bucks, so it's dirt cheap. You know, We spent about 400 hours putting it together. And the book is called The Family Office Book Investing Capital for the Ultra Affluent.
1: Great. Well, I want to thank you, Richard C. Wilson great guest for today, lots of knowledge about family offices, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time out to share your knowledge with us.
2: Sure. Anytime, Noah. Thanks for your time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.